Absolutely. Testing one, two. All right, great. I want to do a I want to do a volume test real quick because because of the amount of people who are present, this is like amazing, right? It's just great that we're all packed in here. If you get too warm, I'm sure there's somebody outside in the hallway who'd love to trade with you. And for all of those who are out in the hallway, can you make some noise? Okay. Perfect. So, I want to go over just a couple of couple of ground rules real quick. Uh, which is that, uh, uh, thank you to everybody who's sitting on the floor, because uh, it means it was somebody who needed a chair who's sitting in it right now. And I also want to say, if anybody needs to use the restroom, you see where Juanique is standing. This is our operations director, Juanique Shabazz. There's a bathroom key right there. If you get thirsty, there is water here. Uh, there is also gentlemen outside with some wine. Some of you probably already know this. I think that's everything. Uh, I just want to let folks know where you're at too, just where you're located. You're, you're located in the Little Five Points Community Center. Woo! WRFG acquired this building in the 80s. We've been here ever since. So you are in the facilities of WRFG Atlanta 89.3 FM. For those who may, yeah, woo! And for those who may not be familiar, we are Atlanta's only independent community radio station. Woo! We are left on the dial and left on the politics. All right, and now the last thing, because there's so much I could say about WRFG, but there's, it's, not, it's not all about me or us. But I will say this. So many people were nice enough to go downstairs and help get chairs. WRFG is uh, about 100% volunteer, so I do love a good volunteer. So afterwards, for those who are feeling the spirit, we're going to take all the chairs back downstairs. And we're going to put the room the way it was before the exhibit. Thank you. Yes. Uh, well, thank y'all so much for joining us this evening at the Little Five Points Community Center. I want to first thank Atlanta Radical Art and WRFG Atlanta for helping us make this event happen. This is an event that is of love and labor and solidarity. So, yes. Um, I'm going to tell you about myself. My name is Jasmine Nicole Williams. I'm a cultural worker and an organizer with Artists Against Apartheid from Atlanta, Georgia. My work explores my experience as a Southern black woman making through printmaking and murals to inspire working class and oppress people to fight for their liberation. I'm influenced by Elizabeth Catlett and Emory Douglas, um, and I believe in the transformative power of portraiture, print, and public art. I understand the role of art in the movement and the need for there to be art, for art to be accessible to people as a tool to advance the working class struggle. With a deep interest in craft and process, my work reflects and relates to everyday people and injects them with the revolutionary spirit and optimism. So that's a little bit about me. And so this panel is called The Role of the Artist. And this event is an opportunity for community members interested in art to and ha or have an artistic practice. We will learn and discuss how artists can contribute to the Palestinian struggle by using art as a tool for liberation. Uh, we must collectively and creatively take part in shaping public opinion in favor of a free and liberated Palestine. And as this lovely post over here says, liberation for all requires resistance from all. So a little bit about Artists Against Apartheid. 
We are a group of over 10,000 artists and cultural workers from 60 countries standing firmly in solidarity with Palestinian people and commit ourselves to using our art forms to build the momentum for a free and liberated Palestine. As artists and cultural producers, we join hands with the people around the world and with the heroic people of Palestine to stop the genocidal war, put on and put an end to the 75 year occupation. We understand our work has the power to shape public opinion in our time. As artists, we have a unique responsibility to use our voice and artistic practices to protest apartheid and amplify the just cause of the Palestinian people and their resistance against occupation and oppression. Big shout out to Atlanta Radical Art, who Atlanta Radical Art is a collective of local Atlanta artists committed to the creation of radical and artistic counterculture in response to the social and political climate of our time. And WRFG um, Atlanta, <laughs> yes, provides a voice to those who have been traditionally denied open access to broadcast media through the involvement of a broad base of community elements and guaranteed to guarantee that access. I know there are a bunch of organizations here today. I'm representing Artists Against Apartheid. We got Atlanta Radical Art in the building. I know we got Palestinian Youth Movement in the building. Where y'all at? Okay. So tonight is a night for everyone to learn. Everyone is a learner. And we want to leave tonight with an understanding that we are here to learn and grow and that we want to hear from the audience as well. So there'll be a portion for questions to be answered. And in the words of the great Elizabeth Catlett, we are not arriving to any absolutes, we are searching. So let's show the world the power of cultural resistance tonight. <laughs> so we're gonna start tonight with some poetry readings, okay? First up, we have uh, Stephen Foster Smith, who is a writer and an educator. So, if you'd like to come up. Amazing. Next up, we got W.G. Lofton. W.G. Lofton is a queer, a black queer Southern poet and multimodal artist. Lofton's constant concern for freedom and the ways in which we access it, particularly through pain, love, grief, and pleasure. Atlanta, Georgia is his home where he prioritizes community building, <laughs> frolicking enjoy <laughs> love that and last but certainly not least we have Aria Marie who is an essayist poet filmmaker and cultural strategist they are the author of Gumbo Yaya and the winner of numerous awards so <laughs> welcome <laughs> Y'all please clap it up for the last two poets. It's so good to be here with Artists Against Empire, Artists Against Apartheid, and artists who are finding ways to make praxis of the thing. I'm gonna read three poems. I'm gonna get out y'all's way so we can listen to some amazing, brilliant people talk about how to be shutting it down and turning it up and building new worlds and all the shit. <laughs> Right? <laughs> I'm actually gonna read this poem from the poet Mosab Abu Toha, who is from Palestine, who was recently kidnapped by the occupiers. I won't even bring their name into this space. And 
the world of artists made noise for our sibling. And <laughs> as Eva would say, shit's real. <laughs> Had to give our baby back, right? So he's now freed and I wanted to bring him and all that radical audacity and freedom into the space. Um, and this is this first poem is from him. Someone's mouth is still open. He hadn't finished yawning when shrapnel pierced through his chest, stung his heart. No wind could stop the flying pieces. Even the sparrow on the lemon tree nearby wondered how it could move with no wings. Masab, who is a beautiful writer, um, who has a book called Things You May Find Hidden in My Ear. And he has this poem called A Rose Shoulders Up. And if you read it, it's very short. I didn't bring it with me into the space today. But if you read it, it actually sounds a lot like Tupac Shakur's uh, The Rose That Grew From Concrete. And when we found out that he was kidnapped, Masab, when we found out that he was kidnapped, I just couldn't stop thinking about how kindred black and Palestinian art is and how kindred um, black and Palestinian folk are and growing ever more kindred. And so I started uh, reading and weaving those two poems together. Um, we came out with a poetry form called the Solidex. It's coming out, y'all, it's coming out. We figured out the rules. But this is that poem that came from uh, Tupac and Masab's work. It's called Like Concrete on Our Shoulders. The law is wrong. We survive by proving it from beneath the concrete. Beneath the concrete, you can hear fresh air learning to walk between our shoulders. We learn to breathe among airstrikes. We soldier on, keep roses alive with our dreams. In your dreams, rows of us grow alive again and no one's feet fall along borders. No long do borders, no long border. The borders fall until our feet grow breathless your nature ruined by laws oh home we are wronged by your ruin we are wronged by unnatural laws did you hear home do you know its name this is how we dream with a crack opening the floor beneath the state did you hear we survived don't be surprised don't you be surprised Thanks. And so for this last one, okay. All right. So two things. I'm in somatic therapy and I'm learning about how sound creates possibility. And so in this poem, all I ask is that when if when if and when the spirit moves you, I just need a little shh. Can y'all try it? Period, period. I'm learning that the S sound is both energizing to the nervous system and regulatory. And I'm like, I don't know what that means, but we working on something. It's, it's coming through for me. Um, this poem is called Now for the Weather. And the homie Hanifa Abdurraqib uh, was retweeting this ridiculous newscast where the BBC had lied about some shit because Israel had told them to lie about some shit. 
and they were coming to acknowledge that they had lied about some shit. But it almost was, it was just, it, the language, I mean, language can be, it can, it's so tricky. It can be tricky. It's the newscaster, she was acknowledging that they had lied, but the tone was so mundane and the language was so empty. It was almost as if she was, you know, talking about the weather. And at the end of her statement, without even taking a breath, she says, and now for the weather. So she says this most devastating acknowledgement of harm and violence. And then she says, now for the weather. So. Earlier on BBC News, we reported on some of the pro-Palestinian demonstrations at the weekend. We spoke about several demonstrations across Britain during which people voiced their backing for Hamas. We accept that this was poorly phrased and was a misleading description of the pro-Palestinian demonstrations. Now here's the weather with Sarah Keithley. So I took that from her ass and wrote this poem. And it's stylized after June Jordan's uh, poems, poems about my rights. Now for the weather. And before that, she flips the hair over her shoulders and says they are storing the dead in ice cream trucks and every violence is like that. A summer symbol gutted, a thousand pairs of feet bloody and beating a path in the name of a freedom we have never met. For six months this year alone, I have marched my bodies in circles in search of it, trying to create distance between the people I love and the men who taunt us into Weilani Forest, shoot our brother, then blame it on the trees. First, not 57 bullets, it's unconfirmed. Then we only fired a few, and then they say it was John just one errant bullet volleying between the woods like an accident. The evening pundits wonder if maybe he shot all those guns at himself, by himself. And so when this so-called newswoman tells me on behalf of Israel that Hamas was under the bridge so they burned the bridge, or Hamas was driving the car so they, they must shoot the car or cry there, Hamas there underneath the bed where seven toddlers were sleeping, then level the hospital, I know I am again meeting the state at its splintering. I know Palestine as a kind of sibling in this, but does such a tender simile ever serve us from the rubble. My sister on the phone as we sit vigil weeps when she realizes she has been speaking to me in Arabic, her mouth beseeching God in a language it can name its fears by. I have not prayed since Ferguson, but tonight I tell her I must try. Every violence is like this, wail inside my mouth, a tongue segregated from the land that birthed it, and each God I meet allows horrors done in his name. And maybe, maybe if it ever changed, the types of tears we shed here, wordless at the edge of an empire, maybe if it ever ended, the summers of death cooling into autumns, the bodies piling like leaves, if there was ever any reprieve, I wouldn't be so angry, so exhausted. 
did. So willing to become what my enemy says I am so I might finally end him. And if that ending couldn't be the start of another war with only one side, but that is one lone prayer unanswered. This world is what it is. And justice is a poem that has hung me too often across where the line breaks. Inaction is not my birthright, it's not my job, it's not my choice. But what to do with the impenetrable loss? What to do about the weather? Mundane and always having some little shift to concern itself with. The seasons change, la 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 la. And from behind the clouds, a fighter jet, simple and regular. No. Every violence wants me to remove the humanity from my blood so corporations and politicians can eat me alive. But like the man driving the ambulance through a ruined city on my phone's blue screen, I refuse. I refuse to be consumed any more than I already have been. I don't know what kind of human absolves themselves to the end of the world, but Habibi, I too count children and the seconds between the dead falling from where they once were to where they might never move again and so how could I not sit vigil useless though it may be against the mortar and the phosphorus and the soldiers god what meaning do we make of a world where the poem is only a container for despair that would consume me otherwise end it all in the whole damn twisted mess but save the sliver of land between the river and the sea Bring back the children and the mothers and the uncles, the beloved queer librarian, the doctor who stayed when they told him to go at gunpoint, the pregnant nail technician, the teenager who was my god in flight school. Return them all, I demand you, yes, give breath back to even the men who did an ugly thing in a desert and made it beautiful in the name of possibility. Gaza, you are not mine, but you are mine. We, a minefield beloved and belonging, I am here. I am here with you in this little room, not in pieces. My hands clasped together, my one crooked tooth drawing blood from the hole it is uttered in my lips. And I apologize that I am so whole otherwise, disabled by old wars and mundane ways. Beyond these empires, beyond the storm's swift chest, there is another world. We will use our hands and our guns, the fires we stoke. Beyond these empires, another world, and I am running towards it. I am running towards one and with death is only the old ugly thing on the opposite side of a line break. Meet me there. Thank you. Wow. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We bring poetry into this space because we know that poetry has had a significant role in the Palestinian struggle, also in the struggle against all oppressors. <laughs> poetry has a way of making abstract, like real in our bodies, you know? So now I'm gonna introduce our panelists, our wonderful panelists. Y'all can like, panelists make your way up. <laughs> that would be great. So I'll just, as they come in. So this is Lulu uh, Ali Amar. Uh, they are a self-taught Palestinian American artist born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia. They create pieces compiled with layers containing multiple mediums, including ink, pastel, 
and paint. Focusing on drawing and painting, they explore communication with the self um, immediately after extensive disassociative st disassociated states. Overall, their practices navigates the intersections between inherited trauma, their Palestinian ancestry, and lived experiences. Amar also studies English literature at Georgia State University, converging their, yes, literary research with visual artistic practices. Let's give it up for Lulu. Okay. All right. And to the far, I guess that's y'all's left, <laughs> we have Musa. So Musa is a cultural worker and community organizer from Atlanta, Georgia, who volunteers with the Walter Rodney Foundation and is a member of the Red Barrel Afro Descend, how do I say that? Ascendiente, yes. <laughs> Thank you. They are the host of the Groundies podcast and a established photographer and multimedia artist, editor at Hood Communist, which check that out if y'all haven't, um, <laughs> author of the forthcoming Paranoid and Alive, and are currently working on a documentary project highlighting contemporary black Cuban organizing. So there's Musa. And then right in the middle, we have uh, Rosina. Rosina is a multimedia visual and performing artist, cultural organizer, and the founder and director of Atlanta Radical Art. She is a diasporic Indian and first-generation American who work, whose work uplifts uh, testimony and collective struggle. Through the use of Indian classical compositions, as well as explorations in immersive theater and guerrilla street art, she uses storytelling to challenge viewers with radical disruption to both transform and activate her audiences. She is inspired by representations of identity, collective memory, and savage ethnography um, as it shows up in popular culture. Her cultural organizing work, which has been in tandem with her art making, has largely centered around Palestinian rights and cross-movement intersectional struggles under empire. So, that's Rosina. Yes. And finally, we have Umema. Umema is a living artist among the Palestinian diaspora on Turtle Island, currently on, Mus on Muscogee land. Her work centers the experiences of Muslim women and explores the ways in which colonized women resist and imagine their freedom. She makes art as a way to theorize, participate in, and create collective liberation. Umema is a multimedia artist, but tends to gravitate towards tatris, uh, traditional Palestinian embroidery, and other forms of fiber and embroidery art. So yes. As an opening question, I want to ask, who is a significant artist who has made political work that has inspired you and why? What were they responding to and how did they respond? For me, it's Elizabeth Catlett. She was a printmaking artist and um, she was responding to being a black woman in America. And due to her, due to her political beliefs, she was forced out of the US and she had to make her life in Mexico, but she continued to stand in solidarity with black liberation struggles and linking them to the Mexican struggle. So a lot of my art bringing up has been about linking struggles 
internationally. So that's me. An artist who I continually come back to is Mahmoud Darwish. Um, very famous Palestinian poet, is like considered the national poet of Palestine. He passed in 2008. But the reason I gravitate so much to his work, even though he's a poet and I tend to do visual art, is that Mahmoud Darwish like connects the resistance to the land. He came from like a Falahi background, like my family came from the village of Palestine. And so like the way that he talks about resistance and exile and dispossession in relation to the land itself, in relation to like life, is something that I like constantly go back to. And he was responding obviously to his own exile out of Palestine and the exile of his family and the dispossession of his land. Um, So if you guys don't know who that is, please look him up. Hey guys, I'm Lulu. Is this on? Okay. Hi. <laughs> My favorite artist since about like earlier this year is Akweki Amezi. They are a Nigerian trans um, writer and visual artist. I first learned about them in one of my English literature classes earlier this year. But I particularly admire their work because more recently they wrote a bunch of like YA novels by the names of Bitter and Pet. And in these stories, they talk about how the main character is very afraid of protesting and fighting oppression. And through how she fights oppression is she starts drawing these monsters that come to life and they help fight and protest. So I thought it was very important to show like the younger generation what it's like to like live artistically within a revolutionary movement and especially like I think a very important practice in art and like to begin decolonizing our world is to imagine what a decolonized world looks like and imagine what it is to fight that way so I think a does a great job of that uh assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh everybody Ooh, I love when I get responses. You know? <laughs> There's someone who really comes to mind who you all have probably never heard of. His name is Emilio Ofaril Almendez, and he's a he's a black Cuban painter, multimedia artist, writer, uh, and he runs this organization called Afroarte. And they essentially teach Cubans, Cuban children, maybe like 15 and younger, the history of like African art and African culture, not just in Cuba, but around the world. And the whole purpose is to instill an African identity into them. And beyond that, you know, once they have like understood themselves as African, he then uses that to connect these children to struggles taking place around the world, in Palestine and Haiti. And similar to what, what you were saying is, his work is very connected to the land. And in the very Cuban way, he says, free the land by saying, in the blockade of Cuba. And the idea of sovereignty and having being sovereign over your land is explored in all of his work because that is the basis of any struggle, is the land. And that's a huge lesson that I've learned from him and his paintings and his work and what he teaches children you know, someone as young as five years old can learn from him about what it means to be sovereign and to have self-determination over your land. And so I'm always looking for artists who I can learn how to talk to children and like talk to anybody about the work. And so that's who definitely inspires me. I really appreciate this question and it's actually very challenging to choose one. But I will say that 
I've had the honor and the privilege of working with so many brilliant living Palestinian artists and first meeting a host of them in uh, 2008 truly transformed my own artistic style and what informed my process as well as the intention of my work. The one that comes to mind that I'll share today is the Freedom Theater. The Freedom Theater is in Janine, which is in the north of the West Bank. Just a show of hands. I'm sorry, this is a panel, but I'm going to ask y'all, does anyone know about the Freedom Theater? Okay, cool. So the Freedom Theater was founded in 2006. And one of the co-founders, Juliana Merkamis, was actually an Israeli Jew and worked with Palestinian artists in Janine during the, I believe 2006, during the first Intifada as a way to join the resistance through the medium of various mediums and art. Um, and I actually did bring a quote that I wanted to read from him. He said, what we do in the theater is not trying to be a substitute or an alternative to the Palestinian resistance in the struggle for liberation, just the opposite. This must be clear. We join, by all means, the Palestinian struggle for liberation, which is our struggle. We are not healers. We are not good Christians. We are freedom fighters. And for those of you who have been tapped into the news over the past two months now, just about, Janine, way before October 7th, for decades, has been a pivotal city in the West Bank for militant resistance and as such has also constantly been at the mercy of the Israeli what we call the IOF not IDF the offensive forces and routinely the theater because it produced provocative work it was not a cultural organization per se it was using art to deliver revolutionary messaging and they gained and they have gained quite an international presence they would ha they would be uh, subject to nightly raids. the the premises the premises would be kind of torn apart. Um, in two thousand eleven, the Juliana, who I just read the quote from, the co-founder, was assassinated. In fact, and all of this is to say, I learned when I was there that the thing the Israeli, the Zionist regime, is the most scared of is the truth. And the capacity for art to tell the truth and to spread the truth is boundless. And even during my time there, several of the cast members who were going to travel abroad were arrested days before. They were thrown into administration detention days before. And it wasn't because they went to Jerusalem without a permit. It was because they were leaving as a troop to tell the true story of Palestine and the true story of living under occupation and apartheid. So that's a lot longer than I intended to go, but the power and the possibility that comes out of the theater and they are continuing to resist despite all circumstances really taught me that there doesn't need to be a separation between art and resistance, between art and revolution. And in fact, as artists, we have a duty and a responsibility to attain all of that through our work. And I, I think ultimately I have learned through the theater that art is inherently political and there's no way around that. So you got to choose what you're going to say and you have to do it with conviction. Sorry. <laughs> 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 
No, that was excellent. <laughs> no need to apologize. That's why you up here. <laughs> yes. So, um, but I, I think that is like a big thing that I kind of came to as an artist, like understanding that art is always political. Either your your art is gonna sedate the masses and usher them towards death, or it's gonna empower them to stand up and fight for liberation and fight for our freedom. So moving on, I think I wanna get in y'all's heads about the ways that art have been used against our interest. Like how has art been a tool to sedate the masses? How has art been a tool to stray us away from our duty as working class oppressed people to, to make revolution and to push humanity forward? Okay, so I'm going to call out the Atlanta art scene real quick. Do it, do it. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. So first off, just in general, like, I feel like not the DIY scene. I'm talking more about the institutional established, Mm -hmm. like, gallery scene here in Atlanta. (laughs) I feel like, first off, as artists, we are, like, forced we are forced to hone in our creativity and our imagination to fit these people's white walls. Like, that's not what we need to do. That's not what art needs to do. So about a week ago, I had the idea of curating like a show for Palestinian and Arab artists. And I reached out to a bunch of like galleries around the area. They either didn't answer me or ignored me or like gave me like their little like automatic response answer, which is like, oh, yeah. It was really upsetting because it's like you as an establishment represent the city of Atlanta. You represent the community. You represent like as artists, we're not just artists. We are cultural workers. So it's our job to like tell the story of the oppressed. And like so if you're not doing that as an artist or as an artistic establishment, you are failing as an artist. You don't deserve to call yourself an artist. So like I don't know. This stuff pisses me off, man. But like (laughs) it's just. Like, I, I hear the thing a lot of, oh, my art doesn't need to be political. And I'm not saying everything you make has to have a political statement. Like, a lot of my abstract pieces, like, they don't seem political to the eye, but, like, you need to keep the revolution in mind and you need to keep oppressed people in mind while you are creating art because it moves creativity in a certain direction where it needs to be stable and put. Yeah, that's what I want to say. So, yeah. yeah, love it. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> any chance I get to talk shit on, <laughs> you know, you said a lot of what I would say. When I first started trying to have my work shown in galleries and do that whole thing, you know, gave up on that. You know, we have to sell our trauma. We have to be victims selling our trauma, selling our identities. And if you're not doing that, you know, you you better be on like Michelle Obama's best sellers list or <laughs> Oprah better be telling people to buy your book if you wanna, you know, like, and so for me, I think what many of us have done and more of us have to do is to disengage from that shit. Like, uh, you know, we can't expect capitalist institutions, colonial institutions to reflect any semblance of anti-capitalist and anti-colonial sentiment or artwork, right? And if they do, we should question the work and why it is perhaps sanitized in a palatable way. So I know that wasn't the answer to the question, but I definitely wanted to affirm that. But when we think of the ways that culture is used against us, 
there is a war against us. Like you hear a lot of Africans in Atlanta. We say there's a war against Africans. There's a war against colonized people. The war is not just material. So it's not just physical violence and, and, and psychological violence, but there's a cultural war that's been waged against us. Some of us for 400 years, some of us, you know, different timelines. And that's evidenced even right now, the US, the Pentagon spend billions of dollars, billions of dollars creating propaganda, manufacturing consent through television, through film, through many of the multimillionaire artists who hang in the walls of the Met, MoMA, the High Museum in Atlanta. You know, and so if culture wasn't a battleground and it wasn't an important territory for us as revolutionaries who believe in resistance to attempts to fight, they wouldn't spend so much energy and so much resources and money trying to propagandize in this field. When we think of film, if you wanna watch a film that has an anti-colonial perspective or just in general that tells the truth, you know, you have to get it on DVD, you have to pirate it, you gotta go to Canopy, which people don't even know what Canopy is half the time. But if you wanna watch Zionist propaganda and you wanna watch military propaganda, there's like 19 Marvel films a year. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so I say all that to say there is ample evidence that the Pentagon, Department of Defense, your local police station, mm. Uh, the Zionist entity itself are spending so much money so that artists like those of us, we are marginalized within our own communities. There's like terms SoundCloud rapper and there's terms to actually like belittle independent artists. There's metrics of measuring the value and the worth of the art you create based on capitalist charts and capitalist systems of accumulation that we quite literally can never attain because it's not meant for us to attain. And so once you understand that there is this highly propagandized war against us, the only answer is we have to create our own propaganda and we have to get really good at creating propaganda. That's the only way that we have like a leg in this fight is like, what are, look at what the enemy is doing and how can we outdo them through grassroots people power. So I'll leave it at that, but. I, for the purpose of time, I won't repeat a lot of the things that have already been said, excellent points. I think the one thing that I will add is, again, going back to the role of the artist, personally, and I won't speak for everyone, but I do insist on this <laughs> for a lot of artists, is that we commit not only to telling and illustrating lived experience, lived reality, revealing narratives that are oftentimes censored and covered up, but also that we imagine and reimagine the futures that we want to be part of, that we want to create. And I think in history, and very presently, as we can all see through, you know, again, what Musa was talking about, is I think... I believe that through the use of propaganda, through advertising, through all of these, you know, on social media, what we're seeing is that not only as artists, but as individuals, we are being robbed of that, the first part of that, right? We're being robbed of having the narratives claimed by the people themselves. It's being told by someone else. And then they have the audacity to tell us what our future should look like. 
I think about the beauty industry, for example, just I mean, it's all political, but I'm going to move away from Palestine. Um, and as a as someone that grew up around a lot of Bollywood, <laughs> I was taught that being a fair skinned Indian was the ideal. In fact, I was taught if you're not fair, you should use bleaching cream. That hasn't changed much over over the years. It's changed very little and it's still very, very visible in the film industry coming out of India. I should speak more to Bollywood, not like Telugu films in the South. But all of this is to say that when we aren't reclaiming space in art spaces and making our own propaganda, the truths are being written for us. And that goes, you know, that goes to speak uh, about institutions as well. And in in not only do they... They both censor our work, but they tokenize and exploit the narratives from their perspective for purposes of diversity, uh, equity and inclusion or whatever the fuck. So it becomes a symbolic gesture that actually is void of our real narratives and our real experiences. Yeah, we're just perpetually alienated until we form our own radical art collectives. Um, so I want to pivot a little bit to ask how um, are you all using art in service of revolution? It's a pretty, it's a big question, <laughs> but how are y'all doing that in y'all's work? I feel like a lot of artists, because we're siloed off, I think that is like a tool that the ruling class uses. Like they kind of separate us from the working class. We don't identify as cultural workers. So we don't know how to plug in with people. We're not with the people. So um, how are, yeah, how are y'all using y'all's art in service of revolution? So ever since I was like in high school, I started doing this thing where instead of submitting my papers or my assignments, I would submit revolutionary art and take the F. <laughs> Or like, I remember my freshman year of college, um, I can't believe that was almost 10 years ago now when Trayvon Martin was murdered. Instead of a final paper, like I was like, how can anybody think of anything else? How can anyone write about anything else? How can we, just like now, right? Like how, how are people just acting like everything is normal? And I illustrated a comic and submitted it instead for my final. And I was like, about the murder of Trayvon Martin. And like ever since then, I have sort of like forced the art into spheres where it's like not welcome. So like, you know, and I'll like write a proposal for a class paper and then do a completely different presentation when I go up there. And I like often encourage people to do that with their art, put that shit in places people don't want to see it, right? Because there are silos. And obviously there's a lot of pushback and consequences. Like I was almost expelled in undergrad for doing something like this. I did a performance and it was a performance showing child detention of Palestinian children. And I was actually almost expelled for that because I told them it was gonna be something about Palestine but I didn't tell them what it was and it was an interactive piece. So you had soldiers burst into what was a home and take a child out from the night while their shoes were on and arrest them. But I think those, that are the, those are the moments when art pays off the most, mm -hmm. you know, is when you're like forcing it into spaces where nobody wants to see it. And you're like, honestly, like, I always sit up there and I'm like, fuck you, I have 20 minutes and I'm just going to say whatever I wanna say. And so that's the way in which like I have 
and I like continuously do that with my art. Um, one of these days, I am going to be kicked out again, probably of this program, but it's worth it. It's like literally worth it. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think that's just like one technique, and that's the way in which I do it. I'm just like been a student for like fucking like 15 years now, but and so that's the way that I'm just like continuously shoving art sort of in a public sphere or in a sphere where like nobody wants to see that, nobody wants to talk about that. But you just gotta, you just gotta. <laughs> <laughs> Make them do it. I, I think that spirit is what makes Umema and I such good like working partners. So I think it's a good segue into ATL Radical Art, which has been my passion project for the past five years. And a lot of it did come to fruition because I came back from living in Palestine and seeing that all of like the badass artists were working in silos mm. and the revolutionary spaces like truly equitable, like not just representation for the sake of representation, but like actually disruptive spaces didn't exist. And people like Umema, like myself, who also have like been firmly committed to using art in disruptive spaces to pushing art onto people who may not buy the ticket is really, really important. And so I guess I guess the collective would be like the most recent example of that. Um, and I had something else to add to it. Can I make a plug? So we are in the process of creating a rapid response team, particularly for disruptive art. In 2018, some of y'all were at the show. Uh, we did a similar sort of immersive theater project with an, a massive mock wall. And I won't go through all of the details, but... Um, it was an experiment in what happens when you disrupt the binary of audience and performer. And you tell a story that necessitates a person to make decisions in a space. And that, you know, that piece was dedicated to Palestine. It was about mobility and privilege. And we ran experiments through this piece of art. And we want to do similar work like that in the Atlanta scene and basically we just need to grow our capacity so we can do more things and some of y'all are actually here because we were we had this conversation almost two weeks ago now but if there are folks in the audience I would just like to um, put that plug in and say come talk to us if that's your jam too and I will pass the mic or do I need to pass the mic y'all got a mic so um role of artist I want to talk about a few things here because I'm pretty relatively new as a visual artist and because of the art scene that like I came into here in Atlanta that I just described, I wasn't aware of guerrilla art or anything along those lines until I met you two two weeks ago. So I was kind of like, oh my God, finally, like this is what I'm trying to do with it. Like this is perfect. So for me, I'm still working on like how I can do that visually and like use my art as a disruption towards society and such like that. Outside of visual art, I study English literature at Georgia State, and I, right now I'm researching the early indigenous history of the Okefenokee Swamp. So like the main reasons I'm doing that is to re-indigenize the literary canon and introduce primary works of indigenous literature to be valid works of literature, like earthworks, effigies, testimony, basket weaving. And a reason I do that is because the 
settler colonialism that was done here in Native America is remarkably similar to what they are doing in Palestine. These settler colonial patterns have been used in so many places and they're continuing. I learned, like, I knew what free Palestine was growing up. Like, I am Palestinian. Like, my grandparents were both kicked out of Palestine. My family came here in the 80s. So I knew they taught me free Palestine, but they weren't able to explain, like, the horrors and the trauma and the torture they endured to me. And I was able to learn more of that through literature about South Africa, through the Haitian Revolution, to learn about those personal stories and relate them to what happened to my family in Palestine. And like currently art for, for me personally right now is working in like, like with what's going on, I feel like there's this like conflicting thing in my head right now that's like, I know what this trauma feels like and I've, it's like affecting the way I'm sleeping, talking, walking. And then there's this opposite side of it where I don't know what it's like to hear a bomb fall through the sky. Like, I don't know what it's like to see like dead limbs all over the ground or like my home burned or like be kicked out of my house. So I feel like for me personally, like processing through art is helping me like connect those two opposing feelings right now. But yeah, thank you. You know, Mao was a poet and a lot of people only know of him as a political leader, you know, brilliant military strategist, all that. But he actually wrote a lot of poetry and wrote a lot about culture and specifically the role of cultural workers. And I'm always trying to find writing from people who are, are or were actively living a revolution, mm. right? Not dreaming and scheming of it, which is wonderful, but who are in the midst of it. You know, like someone like France Fanon, we, we forget he was in the middle of Algeria at a time when the French were doing what the Zionists are doing right now and slaughtering his people when he was doing his, his research and writing. And so Mao says that the in the revolution, there's two arms. There's the arm of war and then there's the arm of ideas and that both take full and complete, you know, attention, resources, both are important. He says the war comes first, but the battle for ideas has to come second or the war will fail. Mm -hmm. And so like that kind of understanding is really foundational for how I think about any cultural work that I create. I remember when I first learned George Jackson, those of you who don't know, he was a black revolutionary incarcerated in California. He was assassinated in his cell and when they were clearing out his cell afterwards, they found two handwritten poems by Palestinian poet Sami Al-Qasim. Mm -hmm. One of them was Enemy of the Sun, which is a very famous poem. And someone who's incarcerated, you have to handwrite a lot of stuff, you know, or, and even the stuff you handwrite is taken away from you at any second. Yeah. And you have a limited number of uh, amount of paper. So the fact that he found these poems so inspiring wherever he originally came across them, that he wrote them down within his limited capacity, that spoke to me so much. For him to be this black political prisoner, incarcerated, he was trying to lead a guerrilla struggle essentially from within the prisons. Um, he connected with the Palestinian struggle and this Palestinian poet and wrote, and those poems were found in his cell. Um, 
I when I learned that like five or six years ago, I was like, I want to create the kind of poem that would be found in a cell like that. Yes. You know what I mean? Like I want my work to inspire that kind of person and be used in that kind of context mm -hmm. and similar. So like when I first started creating art, it was all about me. Everything was about me. I was doing the selling, you know, me and Makita had a joint art show, <laughs> what, eight years ago now at this point. It was all about us, all about me, you know what I mean, and my identity and all this. And then once I start reading what actual revolutionaries and revolutionary artists are saying, they're like, fuck you and yourself, like, yeah. there's a war. <laughs> You know, and so like our role is to make the re as uh, Tony K. Bambara said, our role is to make the revolution irresistible. Mm -hmm. And that sounds like cliche because we hear it so much, but that is such a profound mandate. Like Palestinians have such an acute self-awareness and understanding of the necessity of ending the occupation, ending the Zionist entity and, re and, and having their land, mm -hmm. right? That is at the forefront of almost every single Palestinian artist whose work I've ever come across. Yeah. It is so deeply inspiring. Um, one of the first documentaries I ever did was a seven minute short film about the Museum of the Palestinian People in DC. And if you've never been there, you should make a trip just to go there. It's about as small as this room, but it's really incredible. You know, I remember looking at like the paintings there's embroidery work and paintings and collages. And it was that kind of work that I'm sure a photo would be inside of a prison cell if someone you know, found later after being assassinated. Like It was that kind of inspiring work. And so when I think of what the question was, <laughs> I know I've done a lot of talking, but what is the role of an artist in the revolution? It's to work with the revolution and with the masses and not for ourselves you know what i mean like we have to create work that inspires that is that is the other half of that war and of that battle and our work has to be directly inspired from what is happening in the streets like we can't anymore do vanity mm -hmm. and poetics and call it something political when there is a little if you understand there's a war going on then the work you create is going to reflect that so I'll leave it at that. But read Mao. Just Google Period. Mao cultural work. <laughs> Amazing. It'll change your life. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, what I'm hearing all of y'all say is organizing is an, a key to being an artist that is a revolutionary artist. We can we can hone our skills. We can do that thing t to the nth degree. But if we're not connected to the people, if we're not connected to organizing into organizations, we won't be as sharp as we need to be for our people. We won't be, we won't know what the people need to hear. It's a, it's an exchange, it's a conversation that we're having with our people. And um, yeah, I really appreciate it. Of course. I just wanna add something real quick. I'm with the Black Alliance for Peace. Um, shout out to the Black Alliance for Peace. But you know, we always need people to hop on Canva or Photoshop and create graphics and flyers and carousels because you're already doing it for your own personal Instagram and stuff like that, probably. So like all of these amazing collectives and organizations that were named, you might think you have nothing to offer. You can literally like help create graphics like like what is Gilly? Gilly 101. I don't know, you know, but 
So I just wanted to put that out there. Like the organizations were named so that people can like go to them and contribute. Yeah. So our next question is understanding that propaganda is neutral and the ruling class uses it effectively. Why is it important that revolutionary artists create their own propaganda? And what is the role of propaganda in our movement? We want to chew on that for a little bit. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to keep it super short. Uh, Propaganda. I feel like this is repeating as well, but I'm just going to, whatever. We need to reclaim the narrative, right? And so creating new propaganda is about not only reclaiming the narrative, but reclaiming the space. We only know the colors that we've seen. And so as artists, as collectives, we need to illustrate realities that our audiences have never put themselves in the position to understand. So the propaganda that we create is basically serves the function of cracking people open. I think we are seeing now, you know, more than ever in Palestine, like just a testament to how many people are in this room and in the hall, in the hall. So I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to forget about you for a second. I couldn't see them, you know? Uh, so anyways, and I, I, I hesitate to call like live footage propaganda, but when we're able to provide people with insight and the way that we are seeing live streamed the atrocities, we make it impossible for people to unsee it. And that's what propaganda has the power to do. And so to be able to utilize that in our favor, um, and when I say our favor, I'm talking about humanity, (laughs) is at the it's no different from when we make art that is supposed to crack people open. I, for me, it's synonymous, you know, because our art is our propaganda. Um, and it's not a dirty word. Uh, it can be quite dirty, but not when it is in service of, of the people. So I'll leave it there. Did someone else? Just real quick, I think... Yeah, it really, really is just about the narrative. Like, this is the first time in history that we are seeing a genocide broadcasted day by day in front of our eyes. And we are watching the Western media try to erase it in front of our eyes. So let's not forget how important art is to take back that narrative. And this is the time to fight back and take back that narrative. There's no later. Like, we have to do it right now immediately art is important don't forget that it's a revolutionary powerful weapon as well i just want to say and and the reason why uh tony k bambara says that we have to make the revolutionary the revolution irresistible is because the revolution is irresistible we're literally fighting against our dehumanization we're fighting against we're fighting against indignity we're fighting for our freedom and for our liberation and we all like up here, all of you in this room who have engaged with organized, who engaged with these ideas, know how incredibly irresistible it is to fight for your humanity. And we have to make that plain in our art. Definitely. I think something Rosina said earlier along the lines of like the truth is a weapon. Our 
oppressors have trillions of dollars. They own every channel on the television and every theater, most of the major art galleries. But what we have is the truth. And the truth always wins and always outweighs whatever they're able to throw at us. So like in my work organizing around Cuba, a lot of what we do is, we're, well, what we do is we're trying to end the blockade. And the best way to do that is we just simply tell people the truth. Yes. You know, like we're like, did you know Cuba has free healthcare? Did you know they have free university? Did you know the housing is free? They have one of the highest rates of home ownership in the world and it's free housing, you know? Um, did you know they've armed African revolutionary groups across the continent and armed and so and sent soldiers in to fight decolonization battles in places like Angola against apartheid? Did you know that the Palestinians received arms and training from Castro back in the 70s and 80s? And so a lot of the work we create, artistic, documentary, messaging, is quite literally just sharing the truth. And the way that the truth will connect with people more than anything else is so profound. And then two, like you said, propaganda is extremely neutral. Like it's, we think of it as this bad thing, but propaganda is neutral. It depends on who's doing it. In our messaging in the last, you know, month and a half or so, people are saying like, we support the resistance. Like we have a right to resist. The Palestinians have a right to resist. They got drones. We got gliders, right? Period, period. And um, that is the work of successful propaganda. That is the work of, like, messaging and sharing the truth. That is the work of, like, the truth of the Palestinian both oppression and resistance being much more powerful than Zionist lies. You know, like, the, the Black Panthers in the 70s, one of their popular slogans that was spread across the country in black communities was off the pigs. They weren't, they weren't saying Black Lives Matter. Like, right. You know what I mean? They weren't like, you know, <laughs> let me in. I want to sit next to you at your racist establishment and have a hamburger. They were saying off the pigs. And it caught on and it spread like wildfire. And the oppressors didn't know what to do with it. They were like, well, how do we, what, what do we say back to that? So then they came up with the term cop killer and started calling Panthers cop killers because then they engaged in counter-propaganda. And so I say that to say there's always going to be a counter-argument. There's always going to be counter-propaganda, counter-narrative. That's why when we're thinking of our messaging and the work we're creating, be as radical as fucking possible. Yes. Like, they're going to water it down. They're going to come back at you. They're going to they're gonna tell you you're supporting terrorism or whatever. Like, they're going to do that. That's their literal dialectical role in all of this. So for us, say the radical shit. Say the radical shit. It's not whatever minor consequences may come from that is not worse than living under bombardment mm -hmm. and carpet bombing. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so like that, when we're talking about making our own propaganda, that's my if you take one thing away from this, say the radical shit. Yep. Say it with your whole chest. You know what I mean? And the chest of the person next to you and do it for your ancestors too, if you're black, I'm talking to you. And you know <laughs> And Palestinian. And Palestinian, right. Um <laughs> So yeah, say it with your chest and be radical. And that's the truth is the best propaganda. Yes. I'm going to go to the last question. I kind of want to make it a rapid fire because I do want to get questions from the audience. What are ways that artists can use their talents to fight against ruling class ideas in general 
and in response to the ongoing genocide in Palestine in particular. So I guess like we could do a little rapid fire. For me, get organized, join an organization as an artist and plug into the struggle that way. Your creative mind is necessary in political spaces. I would go back to, I think Rosina, you said this at the very beginning, which is to use, for artists to use their imagination to make art that makes tangible the radical future that we want to live in, to make real the like vision of an abolitionist, anti-colonial future that we want to live in. And something I think that the Palestinians have done in the last two months is use this imagination to like change the narrative of victory. Palestinians are telling the world right now, like, don't cry for us. We are victorious. That is the propaganda they're, they are sharing with us. They were like, our souls are liberated and theirs are shackled. Like, our martyrs are not dead, right? Like, that is the propaganda. Like, we are alive and we are winning. And the angels fight alongside us. And our children are alive. <laughs> and, like, that is so powerful to me. Because I think like so many people, we look at Palestine and we're like, what a disaster, like that is going south. But Palestinians like smell oud in the air. You know what I mean? They smell liberation coming. And so I, I think the role of the artist and what Palestinian artists are doing are challenging our, the narrative upside, it's upside the head. Like you are not killing us. We are not losing. We are winning this war. I have to echo Omeima and add to it that as artists here, in recognition of our responsibility, we have to heed the call of civil society, wherever it is that is seeking liberation. And I'm speaking for Palestine now since the question was posed for Palestine. We have to heed the call of Palestinian civil society we have to look to the Palestinian artists who are telling their story. And when we use the word salvage ethnography, understand that that is our role to become preservationists of these stories of testimonies that are not our testimonies. And that too means understanding our role as artists that are allies and accomplices. So being sure to not center ourselves, but to understand that our freedom is linked to that of Palestine and Palestinians. I also want to echo that. I think something that is very, very important is the role of the imagination in art. If you're not already, try to imagine what it is like to live in a decolonized world. Keep a decolonized Palestine in your hearts and in your minds until it is free. Just keep going with the imagination. I think when this capitalist society we live in, we think of the way it like oppresses us financially and in so many other ways, but we often don't think about how it oppresses our empathy and how it oppresses our imagination. And those are things we can take back and we can take them back immediately. So keep that in your minds. Yeah, definitely plus one, plus one, two, three, plus three to everything that was said. I think in very practical terms, like I said earlier, whatever you do, I, I know someone who is a harpist who was like, I want to join the Cuba Solidarity Movement. And we brought them, we brought her to Cuba and benefit concert. Like whatever you do, if you play the cello, if you paint, 
you write, you tweet a lot, you, <laughs> you know, I don't know if you're a librarian, uh, accountant, whatever you do, find an organization and lend that skill. Or maybe you don't have a skill that you think of that you can lend, show up and volunteer. We're in the building of the only independent radio station here in Atlanta yeah. that is always desperate for volunteers because they share progressive values and do events like this, right? Whatever it is, be a body doing something, whether that is wheat pasting and painting murals or doing accounting for the revolution. I don't know, but <laughs> you, you get what I'm saying. Off the pigs, yeah. Period. Um, yeah, thank y'all so much. This is incredible. I just want to like, if it's okay, yes. I just want to big up some DIY venue spaces. Yes. Just to speak their names in here. Because there are some shitty galleries. But we ain't even got to say their names. But does anyone remember the Low Museum? Some people in here remember the Low Museum. We said, fuck the High Museum. And we were going to have the Low Museum. And it was a place for the, some of these very things in which y'all are discussing. Um, does anyone remember Murmur? Yeah. Oh, yeah, see? Our, our like collective memory, we carry all of those experiences we've had uh, with us. Uh, does anybody know High Low Press? Yes. So there are, like, um, whether or not they are, these galleries are able to sustain themselves, they are a part of history in an individuals, uh, those people who run those, their own uh, pathway through Atlanta or however long they choose to stay or however long, you know, folks can collaborate together. Um, I kind of think sometimes you, we know you say fuck the other, the other galleries, but you don't actually really want to be in there. Uh, that's, we feel like you want to be in that space, but that space is not going to give you the uh, expansive uh, understanding of where you want to place your materiality. And you want to be able to be in a space where you can write on the walls and make a mess and I can come and help you out, you know what I'm saying? Or you want to be in a space where you can run sound down the hall and it's okay and no one's feeling like, is this picture-esque? Um, so any space can be a gallery and that's the all that I want to like leave with that. Uh, honor those who are doing good gallery space but also know that any space can be. I mean, you're physically in one right now that was a conference room in a, in a glorified closet and we were like, no, this could be a gallery. <laughs> and so now it is, and we need people to help curate it. So people who are searching for a space to curate, get with us. Um, but anywhere it can be, your house can be. Uh, you can clear out your living room and put your furniture away, and your house can be a gallery. Uh, uh, you know, one of the nice things to see that folks who are doing work in the Wilani Forest are doing is the forest is a gallery. Mm -hmm. You know, make the gallery space wherever you want it to be. And uh, that's that. And I want to just add quickly the we we have to stop thinking. I think Atlanta is really good for saying we the culture. We are the culture. I am the culture. We aren't the culture. <laughs> the culture is we are we are shepherds of the culture. We are cultural workers. But the culture is something that represents the people. It's, it, it represents the masses of people. And whatever that culture produces, that's what that culture is. The culture is producing more consumerism. If it's producing just People saying they the culture, the culture ain't shit, you know? The if the culture is moving people toward revolution, if it's moving people toward liberation, their humanity, then you know you got some culture going. So I also wanna put that out there. Um, I, I wanted to kind of respond to what Christopher said because I absolutely agree. What I do think of though, the two things that come to mind is we should still be holding institutions accountable 
that doesn't stop. Even if we choose not to participate from like a conscious point, we should still be holding them accountable because they do have the funds and the resources that sh they should be allocating to a broader section of artists in our community and not to mention like amplify, right? The beauty of guerrilla art is that we aren't relying on people to come to our DIY spaces because who's coming to our DIY space? The people in this room. So when we take art to the people, we're like, fuck you, watch this. And that's something we've done um, on 4th of July for a few years, Don. <laughs> we, we missed this year, but, um, you know, we would take our crew down the belt line where people, supposed liberals or liberals, let's call them liberals, uh, they're still wearing their 4th of July, like paraphernalia, paraphernalia, they're drinking their, you know, whatever beer, walking along the belt line. And they're not asking the question of, you know, their personal independence on the backs of whom, right? So we would ask that question. We would do pop-up performances in, in March in between and agitate and aggravate the people who would never come to one of our shows. And so it is about finding spaces that are inclusive, like genuinely inclusive and equitable but also understanding that our work may not belong indoors yeah. or it may not belong in curated spaces. So always engaging the question, what is the function of my art? What is the impact, you know, the, the impact that I want to achieve and who is it for? Who is this? Who is my audience? Uh, and most times out of not, if you're making revolutionary work, your audience doesn't want to see it. So you're going to have to go out there and, and take up space. Yeah. Well, I think that might be it, y'all. This was amazing. I want to thank each and every one of you for coming out. Yeah, shout out to WFRG, uh, RFG for providing the space, for recording the podcast, or for recording the, the audio for the panel. Thank you for to Atlanta Radical Art for representing on this panel. Um, thank you, Artists Against Apartheid. Um, yeah, thank you to everybody and the audience. Um, if you're interested in Artists Against Apartheid, we have um, newspapers. I hope it's still some over there. Yeah, so grab a newspaper, sign on to the letter if you're an artist. So yeah. There's some WRFG schedules over there too for those who love paper. And also, maybe y'all who were at the beginning, you remember I was coming for y'all, I was coming for y'all. We gotta get the chairs downstairs. So I'm gonna get my shoes on real quick. And these back two rows that are that are foldable chairs, all of those chairs are gonna go downstairs and I'll try to rush. Everybody who has uh, two willing hands, see you on the bottom floor.